you pray with me before we open up God's word today? Father, we just, um, we ask that your Holy Spirit, um, that his presence here with us uh, would speak clearly. Lord, we ask that, that we as your people would come with ears to hear from you, hearts ready to receive from you. Lord, continue to show us more of you, that we might more accurately um, reflect your kingdom here. Do this in your church. That's in your name we pray. Amen. In February of 2007, um, I started here at, at Chapel Street Church at the time as the pastor of high school ministries. Uh, pastor Jeff, some of you will remember this, Pastor Jeff was transitioning to an um, adult ministries role. He was a teaching pastor and he was a leading adult discipleship. And so he was in, in moving up and I was coming in to lead the student ministries or the high school ministry specifically. And, um, and so as soon as I got here, one of the things that I started to hear about that was kind of legendary, and you've heard me talk about it numbers many, many times, is the student ministry trip to Ecuador. Like it had existed at that point in time for probably about 10 years and, and I was excited for it. The kids were looking forward to it. There was all kinds of just this, this legendary thing. And so on that trip, one of the things that's a bit of a tradition there is this, at the end of the trip, when the students are more acclimated to kind of the, the elevation and we've gotten used to the new level of oxygen that we're all operating with, we would take a perimeter hike, which would go across the, the peak the, uh, of the mountain that we're on and then back down around to the camp. And it takes a couple hours. And, but the way they would do this was that we would get up at about 4, 4.30 in the morning and we would make the hike and we would, we would pace ourselves relatively slowly. So we kind of do it as a group and we'd get up there in order to watch the sunrise. Um, and so this is my first year doing this. It's, it's, I'm excited for it. I've done a couple much more modest hikes there at, at El Refugio, and, and so I felt like I was ready, and we start out on the hike, and the problem is, is like when you're doing something for the first time, like you have no frame of reference, right? So it's like every five minutes, I'm like the, your kid in the backseat who's like, are we there yet? Like, I'm, I'm like, okay, this is a, perhaps more challenging than I thought. I get about halfway up there and I just realize like I'm going to throw up so I go off into a bush and, and take care of that for a minute and then we keep going and so in my mind I'm starting to think like okay I got up at four in the morning for this like this better be worth it right get up to the the peak of the mountain I feel like I'm half dead at this point in time and I um and one of the things that I was ill prepared for in the moment right so you're making this hike and you're, I'm sweating profusely. And then you get up at the top of the mountain and you just sit to wait for the sun to rise. And there's nothing to block the wind. And so I'm just freezing and I'm miserable. And all the students are like huddled together and I'm kind of off like just, I'm crabby and, and like I can't believe I got up at four in the morning for this. And then the sun starts to rise and you can just see the world unfold before you. And there's valleys. I brought up a picture. This is from one of the hikes. But what was unique about this particular, the very first time I ever did this, is that there was not a cloud in the sky. And you could see, you could see every major peak in Ecuador. So Cotopaxi, the, the volcano is out in front of you. And one of the guys that um, was staffed there at El Refugio, which is the camp that we stay at, said, I've done this hike 
I don't know how many times he said, you, you never get a view like this. Like you're just, because normally when in the mountains there in the morning, you would come out of your room and it's like you're walking to a cloud. Like the clouds just kind of sat in the valley and, and that's sort of, so normally you would go there and you would see some stuff above it. But in this particular day was, there was not a cloud in the sky and I haven't seen a view like it since. I mean, it's just been, it was incredible. And I remember just thinking this is totally worth it. It was worth all of it. Fast forward several years, we were in the jungle this time, and um, we were doing a, a work day down there, working on a trail. So we've got machetes and axes and all this sort of stuff. And it's about the end of the day, and, and we're going to head back to the, the place we're staying, to shower and all that sort of stuff. And, and somebody sends down word from the trail that Rick Borman, who's the, leading the trip, he's the missionary from from Chapel Street that his parents went down in the 50s and he, he grew up, lived, born in Ecuador and, and he loves it, you know. So he sends word down, hey, if you want to come down the trail, um, I found a giant Ecuadorian snail, right? And so I'm kind of like in the spot, like shower is that way, giant Ecuadorian snail this way. Like I'm doing like, and I'm like, I got, I got to see this, right? So I go down the trail, I go all the way down the hike. Most of the students are like, I'm good, I'm gonna go take a shower. I get there, it's just a big stale. Like, it's, like I get there and I'm kind of like, I was picturing something like the size of a dog or something like that. Like, it, it was just the snail. It's like, I was like doing the calculation in my mind, right? I was like, this, this probably wasn't worth it. Like, especially when I got back and the, the line for the shower was like 20 people deep, you know? And we, we have that calculation running in our heads constantly. We're constantly looking around us, asking ourselves the question, is this worth it? We drive right now thinking about, okay, if I go a few extra miles to this other gas station, I know that gas is like five cents cheaper there. And so we're trying to think, okay, if the time I spend to do that, plus the amount of gas I'm going to spend to get to the cheaper gas, but gas is so expensive. Like we're running through this in our heads constantly. Asking ourselves the question, is it worth it? So we evaluate our, our decisions. Even at times, really ultimately, we talk about the direction of our lives based on this assessment of cost and result. Is the result at the end of the day going to be worth it? And if we determine, if we deem that it is worth it, if something is of great worth, right, we're, all, we're willing to pay almost any price in order to achieve that. If you are here with us last week, we've been in this series on Romans chapter 8, and in the section of, the, of Romans 8 that we were looking at last week, we kind of wrapped up by talking about the implications of God's, um, of our status in God's family, our, the spirit of adoption we talked about. That, that God has called us his sons and daughters, that we have been given the rights of sonship, if you remember the way that we how, described how that applies to everybody. And as a result of being a part of the family of God, that you and I have this new inheritance Paul talks about. This is from last week. This is in, in eight chapter, uh, or chapter 8, verse 16 and 17. Paul says this. He says, The Spirit himself testifies together with our spirit, that we are God's children. And if children, also heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. 
So Paul introduces this idea of our inheritance, but he's specific about it. He says it's an inheritance into a shared suffering. We have been adopted into the family of God, and, and we've been adopted into the family business, and because Christ suffered as a result of his announcement of the arrival of his kingdom, Paul's saying it's, it's reasonable to anticipate, to expect that we will suffer as well. But he says, but, but while we share in this suffering, right, he says it's also an inheritance into glory. In other words, Paul is saying it's not a, it's, this isn't an empty suffering. So Paul has introduced into the calculation of the Christians that are living in Rome at the time the reality of suffering and the promise of glory. And, and as he continues on in Romans chapter 8, he's going to try to answer the question, is it worth it? At the end of the day, when it's all said and done, is it worth it? We're going to pick things up now. If you have your Bibles with you, we can turn to Romans chapter 8. We're going to pick things up in verse 18. This is what Paul writes. He says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's going to be revealed to us. For the creation eagerly waits with anticipation for God's sons to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in the hope that the creation itself will also be set free from bondage to decay into the glorious freedom of God's children. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with labor pains until now. Not only that, but we ourselves who have the spirit as the first fruits, we also grown within ourselves, eagerly waiting for our adoption, the redemption of our bodies. Now, in this hope, we were saved. But hope that is seen is not hope, because who hopes for what he sees? For if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with patience. So Paul, he's, he's set up this calculation. He says it's an inheritance into suffering but it's an inheritance also into glory and so as he is helping the christians deal with this question ask the question is it worth it he he starts with this unequivocal yes he he, he basically makes the case if we just if you and i were able to just catch a glimpse right just a shadow of of the glory that awaits like we would understand there'd be no doubt that it's worth it. Now, I want to just note here real quickly that notice the development of, of Paul's um, line of thinking here as we've worked our way through Romans 8 because it really is a picture of the trajectory of the follower of Jesus. He started, remember, if you remember the way that Romans 8 started, he started with what theologically we refer to as justification. It's that reality for there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Right? We've been set free from the law of sin and death. So he's saying your legal status in Christ is that you are justified. And that is comprehensive and it is exhaustive and it can't change. It's permanent. That is your position in Jesus. But then he goes on and he starts to talk about the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives and how the Holy Spirit it dwells inside of us. 
And the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is dwelling in us, and he's dwelling in us in order to form us, to shape us, to be more like Jesus. So we are right now, we're justified, but we're also in the process of growing, spiritually maturing into men and women, teenagers who are becoming more like Jesus. That's the work of sanctification in us. He's, he's doing this in us right now. Part of the reason why community matters and getting into God's word, that's, that's the work that he's unfolding in us. But now Paul points us forward, and this is what we talk about is glorification. So it's justification, sanctification, and he says, but there is an end result. And that end result is going to be when he has finished his work. And we are going to be glorified. We're going to be like him. And so Paul's pointing us forward to the day when Jesus makes all things right, he sets all things new, and he says it's, it's, it's glorious. But he begins at this point of groaning. Look at the great groaning here. Let me go back to, um, to Romans 8, and we'll pick things up in verse 20. He says, For creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in the hope that the creation itself will also be set free from the bondage to decay into the glorious freedom of God's children. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with labor pains until now. So Paul, in other words, right, Paul is essentially saying the world's messed up, right? He's saying the world is, is broken. And really, this is a point of view that, that very few of us would argue. I, I have the opportunity frequently to sit down with people who have questions about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. They have theological questions about um, what faith means and the, the um, I mean, you name it, really. Like the whole gamut of of the Christian life, morality, all of it. Like people ask me all kinds of questions. Almost never do I have somebody come make the case that the world isn't messed up. Like that seems to be a place that we're all kind of like in agreement on. Even, even people that are maybe even somewhat antagonistic or kind of want to approach it kind of like from a debate perspective. Like they grant you that. We might argue about uh, whose fault it is. We might argue about what should be done about it. But the fact that there is a problem is, is clear to everybody. Right? Just a, a casual observance from, from the last seven to ten days of our own news leaves no doubt about the condition of our world. Whether it's horrific violence that's motivated out of racial animosity and, and white supremacy, and not only that, but the audacity, right, to, to live stream this. We can look at that and see that's the brokenness, right? That's just evil. And then to think about that this is an 18-year-old. Like, what has happened in his life that's led him to this place? How do you, how do you arrive there? It, we have this war that's ongoing to the point now I just across my phone yesterday just came with three months of war in Ukraine where it's almost like I've forgotten that that's going on and yet you turn on the news and you see pictures of devastation and death and destruction 
almost every morning when I watch the news, Monday morning, I'll, I'll see the scroll across the bottom of the news, just a number of people who were either shot or were killed over the course of the weekend. And I barely even register it. Like it barely even sits with me. We could talk about the rising rates of depression and anxiety, the mental health crisis. We could go on and on and on. And it's, that's just a drop in the bucket. Right? Paul says creation was subjected to futility. The NIV translates that subjected to frustration. Paul's describing the condition of the world. And he says our experience of this condition, he talks about it as a groaning. It's a loud cry of anguish and pain. This is our condition as the result of sin poisoning everything. Paul has made this case earlier in his letter to the church in Rome. If you flip back a couple of pages to Romans chapter 5, right? Paul describes kind of this pervasive nature. He says in, in Romans 5 verse 12, he says, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way death spread to all people because all sinned. So essentially he's describing the, the sort of all-inclusive, pervasive nature, the impact of sin, and, and, and it's in everything. It's in everyone, and, and it's in all creation. He continues on, in fact, sin was in the world before the law, but sin is not charged to a person's account when there is no law. Nevertheless, sin reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who did not sin in the likeness of Adam's transgression. He is a type of the one coming. So as Paul begins to describe what Jesus is going to offer to humanity, how he is the solution, he's first describing the nature of the problem. Paul, Paul essentially is, is saying sin is a, a virus, and it's got a 100% infection rate, and beyond that, it has a 100% mortality rate. In other words, the whole world is broken and it's groaning. It does not function. It's operating out of frustration. It's not functioning according to its design. In fact, it's, it's unable to do so. There was uh, recently a conference down at Christ Community Church. Um, and it was on the topic, the subject matter of this conference was the theology of suffering. And one of the keynote speakers at this conference was D.A. Carson, who's um, a theologian and an author and a speaker. And he made an interesting point. He said, one of the surprises when we, under, when we read scripture and we think about the pervasive nature of sin is not that we suffer. That, that seems obvious. He says, actually, it's that we're not suffering more. Like that, that is, is the surprise when we look at kind of a, a theology or a doctrine of sin. Right? It's, he's saying the, the surprise is that it's not far worse. Because since Genesis chapter 3, since, since rebellion sort of entered the picture where, where, and this is what sin is, it's a rebellion against God's way, against God. Since that entered the picture, this has been our trajectory. It's been towards decay, Paul says. It's been towards death. That is the, the mindset of the flesh. That's where it leads. But also since Genesis chapter 3, as soon as you saw the impact of sin entering the picture, you simultaneously see God starting to work 
and move in order to fix a broken world. He doesn't leave us in that state. He starts to move instantaneously towards our redemption and our restoration. And so this is the, the hope that Paul begins to describe. This is the great redemption. This is what we see next here. Right at the outset of these verses, there's, there's two important realities, right? There is a glory that is going to be revealed in us. And there is a creation that is subjected to futility, to frustration. Right? So as we live in this, this broken world, as Paul sets these two things up, when he talks about the futility and the suffering and the brokenness, and he talks about the future glory, and he says when we make a comparative analysis of these two, Paul's saying they don't compare. The, the, the glory that awaits far exceeds the futility, the suffering that we experience. Look back in, in, in Romans 8 and verse 22 and 23. Paul says, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with labor pains until now. And not only that, but we ourselves who have the Spirit as the first fruits. We also groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. Paul, Paul makes a comparison between the type of suffering that we experience in a broken world to that of, of labor pains. Right? In other words, Paul is saying that this is a type of suffering, it's an informed suffering. Or it's a productive suffering. It's a suffering mixed with what Paul describes as eagerly waiting, anticipation. If, we, if you and I right now were to take a field trip, and we were to load up a bus, and we were to go down to Delnor Hospital, and we were to walk through labor and delivery, right? And if maybe while we were walking through labor and delivery, we heard a groan. Right? We would understand that the nature of that groaning is that it's a reflection of pain, but it's an informed pain. It's a, it's a pain that is looking forward to the arrival of a child. And there's joy that's mixed in with that pain. And, and while we might feel for that person, we'd simultaneously anticipate the joy with them. But if we were to walk down the hall and we were to go to the hospice wing, and we were to hear groaning we would know that that that's a very different type of groaning we'd feel grief and sorrow see this pulsing this suffering that we experience this groaning it's it points us forward it's directing us to a promise paul paul wants the promise of our future to inform our experience in the present he says, all creation, which has been impacted by this infection of sin, is waiting with anticipation, Paul writes, for God's sons, God's people, as we talked about sonship last week, for God's people to be revealed. Why is creation waiting for God's people to be revealed, to be restored? Because it knows it's next. Because when God has revealed his children he knows that the creation knows that the restoration of all that we see around us that that's coming next this is where god's redemptive work is leading it's towards renewal it's towards full restoration it's a return to god's creative design and his intent 
God will restore his people, and when he does, God's going to go on and restore the entirety of his created world. And if we were to try to describe that, if we were to think of put a, put a word to that, Paul says it's, 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 going to be, it's going to be glorious. It's going to be amazing. It's, going to, it's beyond our comprehension. We, we, we picture beauty, we picture, and you even think about this, right? Our experience of beauty in this world. Like if you were to go and we were to see the Grand Canyon and then, or up on a mountainside in Ecuador and it takes your breath away, like we're seeing a fragmented, broken experience of, of what will one day be when all is set perfect. Like it's, we can't even wrap our head around it. Have you ever uh, seen, um, what do they call this? Like a forced perspective photography. You know what that is? So it's like when there's things kind of set at, at different background levels and it's often done kind of creatively to make something small look very big and make something big look very small. So this is an example of, of forced perspective photography, right? Somebody has put their hand very close to the camera and beyond it is this gigantic um, hot air balloon. And, and this is what Paul's describing to us. He's saying, when we, when, from this perspective, from this lens, when we look at our experience and we look at suffering, and he says it's right in front of us and it's so big and it seems to be the thing that is primary. But what Paul's wanting us to do is to look beyond that, to see the glory that is to come and to recognize the size and the scale. He wants to put it in proper perspective. We're looking at it through the lens of, of a forced perspective. Paul's saying, I want, to, I want to change the way you view this. I want you to look at this differently. And in the meantime, in verse 23, he says, we ourselves have the Spirit as first fruits. In other words, he's saying, we are given this, this taste, a sample of God's redemptive work through the work that the Holy Spirit does in us. Right? So it's, it's, like, um, it's like a Costco sample. You go and you get like the little bite of it, but you recognize behind them is like a crate full of this stuff, right? Like that's, that's what he's saying about the Holy Spirit in us. So when I was a kid, my, my grandpa Dininger um, was a farmer and had all kinds of land. We used to go spend the summer up there and he would grow rows and rows and rows of sweet corn. And in the um, late summer when that first piece of sweet corn was ready. The crop wasn't ready, but there was like one first fruit, right? This early bloom. And he would take it and we'd all get a bite of sweet corn and you'd be like, it's, it's, we're not there yet, but something good is coming, right? Like something delicious. When we think about what the Holy Spirit's doing in us now, when he starts to uncover in me like, hey, there's this selfish thing that you've got in your heart right now and I want to, I want to, I want to till that up and I want to get rid of the stuff that doesn't belong. And I want to grow in you the character of, of Jesus. Like we're getting this taste, this sample of the completed work. It's like when I, when I always, I always got little projects going on at the house. I'm just a, a busy body that way, but I'll like, I'll like install like a piece of trim, you know, and some project. It's the first piece to go in and I'm like, Sherry, you got to come look at this. You got to come see this. Look at this piece of trim. Like, doesn't that look great? I know the whole wall is messed up, and I know I've taken everything down, and, but this, can't you just picture when the work is done? Can't you see it? It's going to look amazing. Think how annoyed she was when I did hardwood floors. 
Like, it just, are you saying we aren't there yet? It's not, the work is not complete, but we wait with eager expectations. We, we also, he says, groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting our adoption, which is a little bit confusing us. For last week, we, we are adopted, so what does this mean? He's saying our adoption is complete, like friends of mine who have done international adoptions. Legally, the adoption is complete, but it might take a month or two before that child is ultimately brought home and they're experiencing the reality of that adoption. This is where Paul puts us here. We're eagerly waiting for our adoption, the redemption of our bodies. The groaning of those who are in Jesus is an informed groaning. Redemption is on its way. Restoration is on its way. He's going to make all things new. And so then we wait with a great hope. This is the third thing we see here, a great hope. Now in this hope, we were saved. But hope that is seen is is not hope because who hopes for what he sees? And now if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with patience. Just this last week on Wednesday, um, in our staff gather, which is um, for all the staff here at Chapel Street, we had the opportunity to hear from Dr. John Dixon, who's a, a historian, New Testament scholar. He happened to be in town and it worked out that he could come share with us. And it was, he's, he's very versed in church history, which is like, I love that stuff. So I was just soaking it up. But um, one of the things that he talked about in the course of this conversation with the staff was Frederick Nietzsche, who was like a philosopher, atheist in um, the late 1800s, when he viewed early Christians and the way they operated in the world, he described kind of their approach to the world as what he talked about as a slave morality, meaning that they were a defeated people. And so Christians operated out of this place of pity and weakness and humility. And, and what Nietzsche didn't understand and what he, what he couldn't understand is that those early Christians weren't operating out of a, a slave morality. They were operating out of a victor's morality. So what those early Christians understood, even when it cost them their life, is that no matter what somebody did to them, no matter what punishment they might bring down on them, the, the, the victory was already ultimately been secured. They, they didn't have anything to prove. They, they didn't have, it wasn't out of defeat, it was out of victory. And in fact, one of, in, in, in American history, one of the clearest examples that we have of this is in the writings and the spirituals that um, came from the black slave trade. If you read their uh, worship, if you read the, the poetry that they wrote, it is always pointing forward to a victory that has already been won. And, and they allowed, in the midst of their of horrific circumstances, to experience, to live faithfully to Jesus out of a place of a victory that's already been secured. And this is Paul's directive. He's saying, live in the knowledge and the awareness of the final result of what he describes as, as the great redemption, which is our great hope. The victory, Paul writes, is secure. It hasn't arrived yet. We don't experience it in full. But Paul says, if, if, if we had, we wouldn't call it hope, right? 
says if it was all, it would be reality then. It's our great hope because we eagerly wait for it with patience. So until that time, until that moment, either when you go home to be with him or he returns to set all things right, we live with a victor's morality. We live in the confidence and the security that our groaning doesn't have the last word. And look what he writes in verse 26. This is jumping ahead to next week, but I had to go here. He says, in the same way, the Spirit also helps us in our weakness. Because we do not know what to pray for as we should. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with unspoken groanings in the midst of of our groanings, even when we don't have words to articulate it, the Spirit is interceding on our behalf in the midst of that. I'm going to invite the worship team to return this morning. I want to, I want to conclude our time together in just a response of reflection. A lot of times we'll, we'll respond by court with corporate worship together, but I want to invite the worship team, and they're going to um, lead us through a song that was written by Andrew Peterson. That, that speaks to this truth. And I just want this to be a time that you allow this to, um, to settle in, to, to allow the hope that, that Paul directs us to, this glorification that he talks about, that reality, the implications of that to settle in. And I'll come and, and close us in just a moment. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to be in your community together. Lord, thank you for meeting us in this place. Thank you for the work that you will one day complete. And until that day, may we live faithfully in the knowledge and the awareness of your great redemption and of our great hope. It's in your name we pray. Amen.